When I was a senior at Mayopac High School, I had an English teacher who, we all came to believe, wasn't actually reading our written assignments. So one day, being the punk cocky asshole I was, I hatched a plan. Mrs. Barrow assigned us something to write in class, and then she left the room. As soon as the door closed, I said we should all place, midway through our papers, the sentence, anything with pineapples is good for me. So we did, all of us. We all wrote, anything with pineapples is good for me. And Mrs. Burrell collected the papers and told us she'd return them by the following afternoon. We were all generally curious and a bit nervous. What if we got caught? What if this would turn into some big scandal? Well, the next afternoon, Mrs. Burrell shuffled into the room and she returned our papers. All of them marked with an affirmative check. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and a host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Tom Callahan, the former star sports columnist for such newspapers as the Cincinnati Inquirer and the San Diego Union, the former Time Magazine senior writer, and the author of a fabulous new memoir, Gods at Play, an eyewitness account great moments in American sports. This is episode number 202. Let's sling some yang. Tom, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Glad to, I'm glad to do it. I've, I've known of you forever, and it's nice to see you. Yeah, same. I actually was thinking of something. I was thinking of different ways to open this, and I'm just going to I'm gonna come clean. I'm in the middle of working on a book, and it's a book about Bo Jackson, and I'm losing my mind. Like, I'm actually, I feel like today I woke up just completely drained. I'm, I'm hardcore into interviews. I've done hundreds of interviews and I'm just sick of it. I almost feel like I just want to freaking throw up and move on. You know, and my son just said, just take a day off, take a day. I'm like, how do you deal with this shit without losing your head? Oh God, I don't know. I've never had a project that, that made me feel like that. I think, especially lately, I only do what I feel like doing. I'm a hard guy. You know, I, I, I please myself. I'm a selfish guy. I think I told you over, over email, I consider Johnny Yu, your, your biography of Johnny Unitas, to be one of the great sports biographies ever written. It'd be hard to do a book on a guy if you don't know him at all. You know, and I was around him just a little. My first stop in the business was the Evening Sun in Baltimore. I was a high school guy there. But I, they'd send me to do sidebars on the Colts, and I, so I was around the Colts a little bit. When you decided to write a Johnny Unitas biography, did you... Did you have a goal besides writing a really good book? Like, do you walk into a book thinking, this is what I want to accomplish, this is what I want to do? Or do you just think, I just want to make this book good? My, my goal was not to write a, a, a biography, <laughs> you know, a standard biography. I was kind of more interested in the times, especially his first group of um, collaborators, you know, the, the, the first wave of players. I didn't, I, I stayed away from Bubba Smith and, and um, you know, Mike Curtis, but I was, very interested in Gino Marchetti and Jim Parker and Lenny Moore, the, you know, the first wave. And uh, that was the fun of it. I was a kid in Baltimore. You know, I went to Loyola High School in Baltimore and we played our, our Thanksgiving football game at Memorial Stadium. So I'd, I dressed in that locker room, you know, and, and uh, so I had an affection. And I'm not a guy, I've never been a guy who fell in love with the athletes or the games, you know, I, I, I like the words more than the games. I, I'm not completely cynical about it. You know, I, I like them well enough. I've seen a lot of stirring things. I, I, I don't want to sound too jaded, but, but I always cared more about the words. And, uh, the, and the fun in doing Unitas was talk, going and seeing all these guys, 
you know, that I knew him. I, I kind of knew him even if I didn't know him. You know, like Lenny Moore, he's, he lives in Randallstown in Baltimore, typically. He lived right where he always lived. And he, and he said to me, Jim Parker's in a, uh, has got dementia. He was a wonderful offensive uh, guard. And, and he said, he's got, Jim's got dementia, but he said, keep going back. If he's there and, he, and, he, and it doesn't work, say goodbye and go back and go back because eventually he'll be great. And he was so right. It took me about four trips over there to see Parker, but he, his stories were all so good. Sitting around with Marchetti, Marchetti was like the real John Wayne. He, he, he fought in the Battle of the Bulge before he went to college. And, and I, I go into every book thinking nobody's ever going to read it. I don't, and nobody believes me when I say it, but I basically don't care if they read, read it. Wait, why don't you care? Because I just don't. I please myself, and which is a terrible thing to say, but it's the truth. And uh, I don't write for money anymore. You know, I'm an old crock. I've stopped writing for money. I mean, the last book I wrote, the book that is fairly new to the stands now, is just a bunch of stories. You know, the stories I've been telling my whole life and stories I've never told before. I've been reading your book. I'm deep into it. I keep thinking the access is incredible. Nowadays, if you're someone and you want to write about LeBron James, just as an example, you go through his publicist, then you go through his agent, then you go through so-and-so, maybe you get five minutes with LeBron after practice, blah, blah, blah. And Time after time, the, the, the recurring theme of your books, for me personally as a journalist, is holy shit, the access. Johnny Bench, here I am driving with Johnny Bench. Here I am with Roberto Clemente. They all know who you are. You engage with them. You go to dinner with them. What the hell happened? Why don't we have that anymore? That's a, that's a function of the time. The world was different. You know, when I first started covering Pete Rose, his ambition was to be the first $100,000 single hitter. He didn't have much more money than I did. I was boy columnist in Cincinnati when it was a pretty lively time to be writing sports because the Reds were good and the, Paul Brown was still coaching the Bengals and the um, Indy 500 was next door and the Kentucky Derby was next door. And, and, and then, you know, subsequently, fairly young, I got out of newspapers at 35 and I did, did the Sports of Time magazine. Well, I did a cover story on Larry Bird and, and Wayne Gretzky. I didn't call any PR guys. I didn't do anything. I just walked up to Bird at his locker and told him I'm Tom Kelly with Time Magazine. I'd like to talk to you. We made a um, appointment to, to get together. But the funny thing is, is he couldn't hold the concept of Time Magazine in his head. He kept introducing me to people saying, this is Tom Kelly with New York Times Magazine. Well, I never corrected him. What the hell? What's the difference? But anyway, when he, he told me, you know, you go to French Lick, I'll have my brother pick you up. But, I'll make a deal with you. Stay away from my younger brother. He's, he's as scared as I was. Leave him alone. I'll have my big brother, Mark, pick you up at the airport. You know, there's an airport in French Lake. You can't believe it, but, it, but there is. So anyway, here comes this guy, six foot tall, a foot shorter, but a dead ringer for Larry. You know, Mark, Mark Bird. And he right. said, are you the guy from the New York Times Magazine? I said, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when Dan Shaughnessy, when, when, the, when the story was out, there was a painting of the two of them, Gretzky and Bird on the cover. Shaughnessy was at the carousel in the airport picking up his bag. And um, he said to Larry, he said, you know, Larry, there haven't been too many basketball players on the cover of Time magazine. And Larry looked at him and said, it's not really a sports magazine. <laughs> Dan said, oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Larry. It, it's a function. It has nothing to do with me. It's a function of the era. 
that, that you had more access. You know, you'd sit with the manager of either team right up to the first pitch in, in, the, in the dugout, you know, and you'd pick his brain. You know, Earl Weaver said to me once, all those guys think he's my favorite. Every one of them thinks he's my favorite. <laughs> I laughed because, you know, Earl, he liked being their favorite. You know, he, he liked being available. You know, he wanted to talk. It was just a different, a completely different era. Was there an understanding? Like, let's say, I don't know, let's say you're out at a bar and you saw Johnny Unitas with, you know, someone who wasn't Mrs. Unitas. Was there a sort of understanding that you would not write that kind of stuff? Yes, I certainly felt that way. Dick Allen was a big drinker. Part of the awe players had for Dick Allen was that he had this little tiny waist, even though he was a, he drank like a fish. He'd be in the saloon, and like Dave Nightingale, who was a baseball writer, he would suddenly look up, and there's Allen. He'd say, Dick, are you going to go to the game? It was like 20 minutes to first pitch. He said, oh, yeah, hell, let's go. So they jumped in a cab. He dropped Allen off at the player's gate, and then he went up to the press box. By the time he got to the press box, Allen was at the plate, hit the longest home run he ever saw him hit. And he thought to himself, do I write it or don't I? And he didn't. He didn't write that he delivered He delivered him to the game from the bar just on time to hit a home run. Today, I guess that would be a hard thing not to write. If you were doing the Unitas book, same thing. You're working on this, you know, you call it sort of biography of Johnny Unitas. And I don't know, you know, one of the Lenny Moore is telling you about that Johnny Unitas loved hookers. Just as an example, I'm not saying he did. You know, when you're doing a look back at someone's life, Johnny Unitas, man, he just loved hookers. You would never know that about him, but he loved hookers. Do you use that in the book? Maybe so, because I didn't spare Earl Woods. He had a great affection for hookers. Tiger had, you know, inherited his affection from his father. Ernie Els told me that during that trip, when they were supposedly there to see Nelson Mandela, he said there was a line of hookers all the way to the Santa Sun Hotel. He says, for Earl. So I guess maybe I would have. I was digging through your greatest hits and I came across a story you probably wouldn't even remember from March 12th, 1972, the Cincinnati Enquirer. The headline was Warrior Superstar Wallows in Obscurity. And you wrote this about Nate Thurmond. When great centers are discussed or all-star teams selected, his name rarely comes up. This is just another of the unexplainable happenings of the National Basketball Association. Then you wrote... Thurmond is a plate of bones delicately attached and spread with just enough skin to cover the job. He is a long band of 6'11", willowy and fragile looking, a high tension wire so gentle to the eye, but ever so dangerous to the touch. Freaking love it. When you were trying to describe athletes or describe emotion or describe something happening in front of you, how'd you do it? I tried to think of something that wasn't familiar and I would steal sometimes from, from Red Smith because we, we often would be sitting beside each other. We were like 101A in those days. I can remember once we were sitting at an NFL game, and it was the Dolphins against the Bengals, a playoff game. Don Shula, the Dolphins coach, if he wasn't wearing a whistle, he looked like he was. You know, he looked like the classic football coach in football guard, you know. Meanwhile, across the way is Paul Brown in that brown suit and the brown fedora. I was getting ready to call him a stockbroker, and I thought, I don't want to call him a stockbroker. And I turned to Red, and I said, what does Paul Brown look like to you now? And Red looked across the field and said, the homicide inspector viewing the body. <laughs> <laughs> and, I said, and I said, can I have that? He said, sure. 
you know, the homicide inspector viewing the body. That's exactly what he looked like. And when I came into the business, I gravitated to the oldest guys because they were more fun at dinner. The great thing about those guys, they went back to a time when television wasn't there. And so Shirley, who covered the long count fight at Soldier Field, you know, when he was like a teenager, he knew that the readers of the Washington Post were only going to see that fight through him. So he felt this tremendous responsibility to get it exactly right. Because there was no television. No one was going to see that fight except through Shirley. And when Shirley was at the Derby, and I was, I spent a lot of time with him at the Derby, he would not bet on the, on the race. He, he, never, he never got a ticket on the Derby because he didn't want to be distracted from watching the race. You know, that, to me, that was like the definition of integrity. He was going to watch that race so he could get it exactly right for his readers. I was never uh, in this group of writers, and you know them, many of them, who think that their obligation is to make it better than it is. My obligation is to make it exactly as it is. And, and to, to have fun describing things, that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm sitting in a hotel room with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he's lying on a couch. And, and I'm looking at him. He looked like a praying mantis. So I'm, 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 I'm writing, as well, I'm talking to him. I'm writing little notes what he looked like. And then he gave me the best answer I think I ever got from an athlete. We were talking about how he said it took him a long time to find a uh, role model. I said, who, who, who were they? He said, I'm not sure I want to say. I said, Will Chamberlain? He said, are you crazy? And then he said, the Empire State Building, the Redwood Trees. And I thought, you can't think of a better answer than that. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett, who spends many of his hours talking with his friends on the discourse. Discord. I want a discourse. Discord. Okay, here I go. Fella, bling bling, 503-sports.com has on the fleek throwback sports gear. Wiki wiki hickey hickey. Bring to funk, Def Jam, and check out all the, see, I said duh, not the, hats, shirts, and sweatshirts. This is Jeff, Discord out, playa. I don't think you understand what Discord is. Stop flexing on me, bruh. Yesterday, there was a little bit of a, uh, of a, of a situation where a veteran journalist, the question was, someone asked, if a young person wanted to go into journalism right now, what advice would you give them? And there's a writer for GQ named Julia Ihoff who said, advise them to seek a different career path. I thought that was shitty advice. I think this is a fucking great way to make a career and a worthwhile way to make a career. And it's harder than it used to be and blah, blah, blah. But it's, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm 75. I still think there's a value to it. And I think there's still good guys and ordinary guys and, um, I'm sad when I go into a big league press box these days and, and I hung around the New York Giants 10 years ago or so doing a book and, and uh, it made me sad. All, the, all those gentlemen in fedoras are gone. Yeah. They've been replaced by dormitory rats, you know, <laughs> dressing like sharecroppers, you know, and that's okay. But what isn't okay is today's sports writer, they're yelling out wisecracks the whole game. I can't watch a game in, in the press box because there are guys, they're yelling out laugh tracks. And uh, I don't think of them as, as the, the latest generation of these guys. I think the latest generation is kind of hidden among them. I'm like you. I, I think there's a value at work here. And I wouldn't talk anybody out of doing it because I enjoy it you know, so much. And I, I enjoyed 
newspapers especially. And when I, you know, I stopped pretty young because I was 35 when I went to Time Magazine. But then I started contributing a Sunday column to the Washington Post, basically because I, I missed having a newspaper in my hands, you know, reading it. There's nothing like going out in the stoop and picking up the paper and reading your column. I don't lament this strange life I've had. I wouldn't talk any young person out of taking a chance, but I, but I think it's, it's harder to do now. It's harder to find. I don't care about um, tweeting. If I had to do social media to keep up with it, which I guess I would have to, I wouldn't, I, maybe I wouldn't do it then. But there was a time when I knew who the good sports writers were, and every town had one. And I associated them with their towns. There might be two. It might be Mel Dursleig and Jim Murray in L.A. I can remember looking forward to reading them. You know, Dave Kinder, my great friend, he was, he was at the Courier-Journal when I was in Cincinnati. We were always opponents, but never rooted against each other. Pete Axelm, when he was at Newsweek and I was at Time, Axelm was a sweet guy and a, and a, and a gifted writer and his own worst enemy, drank him to death at 47. Who's the biggest asshole uh, athlete you ever dealt with? I have to think because the funny thing is I got along with the scoundrels and I don't know why. I mean, I, I knew guys like um, Mike Marshall. Who, I got along with him. You know, there were guys who were terrible. I tried to talk to Eddie Murray once and I couldn't, I couldn't make him work. I couldn't get anything out of Bill Russell, but I never, you know, I never blamed Russell because of things that happened to him in Boston. That's all I needed to know. Someone went in to his, broke into his home and went to the bathroom in his bed. You don't have to explain to me why you have a grudge. I just want to say one thing that's interesting is it's very easy to look at someone we're covering and say, God, that guy's such an asshole. But in a lot of ways, it's our job to figure out why the guy is quote unquote an asshole. And maybe it's much more understandable if you go back and see his history. You know, I always say like, just with Bo Jackson right now, grew up in horrible poverty, grew up with a stutter, with a severe stutter that he got mocked for from the time he was a kid. And those things have an impact. So when you take someone and then you throw him into this world where he's yeah. all of a sudden he's getting all this money and he's start, why aren't you being friendly? Why aren't you nice? And it's like, you have to look at their lives, people's lives before they became what you know. So maybe it's almost an unfair question to refer to someone as an asshole and not understanding where they came from. Certainly, there were a lot of guys who would tell you I'm an asshole. But basically, um, I don't know. I guess I was kind of lucky. I got along with, with the guys who nobody got along with. In conclusion, you were the asshole. A lot of people would say so at different times. They hated you at different times, and, and, and then it was okay other, other times. And Ben should be that way. I mean, Bench, Bench hated me. You know, he hated me. But... By the you know by the end we would still we, we we never stopped talking to each other we we would talk to each other but you know it's the same thing thing is with Tiger Tiger associates me with his father because I knew you know I knew his father and, and uh, I blamed his father for most of his problems and uh, kind of obvious and his mother as well you know she was a Manchurian candidate in a lot of ways but you know what hell of a golfer. <laughs> right. You know, watching him, uh, you know, I, I guess I got something out of him, you know, or, or, or something uh, how, on how, how good he was, because he was by far the best. Nicholas had more majors, but Tiger had things on his resume Nick, Jack never even dreamed of. And, and the time was different. We all knew I played golf with Jack Nicholas, and we, 
we all knew it was different in those days. You know, Art Spander, a guy you know, you know, he knew Johnny Miller and Jack. They were friends of his, you know, and uh, and Jack. And Tiger doesn't have friends like that in the media. I appreciate you doing this. I think the new book is amazing. I've been recommending it to everybody. Oh, uh, yeah, it's just great. So I, um, it's really an honor speaking to you. I really appreciate you doing this. If there's ever anything I can do for you, call me. I want to thank today's guest, Tom Callahan, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. In by God's at Play, an eyewitness account of great moments in American sports wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Sling and Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make zero dollars for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.